Hello, mamas, and welcome back to episode two in our VBAC podcast series. Today, we are breaking down the research and the evidence and telling you what the exact stats are around certain risk factors and success rates in VBAC. Enjoy. Hey, mama, I'm sending you wonderful pregnancy vibes. It's time for you to guide you through. Let's take some time for the Pregnancy with Physio Laura podcast. We are up to episode two in our incredible VBAC podcast series. So if you haven't already, go and check out episode one. That was with the wonderful midwife Loretta and she shared her top tips for a successful VBAC. That was a great episode. Now today I'm interviewing the incredible Julie and Megan from the VBAC link. They are amazing. They have they are doulas and they have put together incredible resources around VBACs and the stats and the research and supporting women through this journey. They've dedicated their entire, you know, profession to this and I am so grateful I found them. I encourage you to go look at their work at the VBAC link on Instagram. They have amazing resources, blog articles, um, and community there. So please, I do encourage you to go check them out. They are a wealth of knowledge. As you'll hear in these episodes coming up, Julie is like the research nerd. She loves pulling apart the evidence and letting us know what are the actual stats around VBAC. There's a lot of opinions thrown around around VBAC, but what I wanted to present you with was, but what is the actual evidence? Rather than the fear mongering and people's opinions about the safety and whatnot, what is the actual evidence? I think that is such a key part of this and that is what women want to know so that they can work out what they feel is acceptable for them, what risk is acceptable for them with the research under their belt, with the information. And that should be easy to come across, but it's actually really tricky to come across this. So today's episode is a goodie and I know you're going to love it. We are talking about what the actual success rates are for VBAC and the evidence behind that and the importance of your care provider and having these conversations with your care team. We talk about the birthing system as a whole and why it is not necessarily favoring women having VBACs. We talk about the importance of taking ownership of your birth. We talk about the interval between pregnancies. I get asked this a lot. I get asked, how long can I wait to have a VBAC? I want to have babies close together. You know, what does the evidence say behind, do I have to wait because my risk of having a VBAC, you know, will reduce or increase or what, what is it saying? Um, I know I get asked this question a lot. So we dive right into that. Personally, I had a 20 month gap between all my children between births that is Um, but we talk about it we really pull apart the evidence and tell you what the studies say Um, and we eventually leave the question with you about what do you think is an acceptable risk for you to take I know you're going to love this episode it is so juicy so rich it's not boring so if you feel like stats are not your thing I truly trust me it is not boring (laughs) it is really juicy it is really informative and I want to know what you think about this episode please as always go over to at physio Laura and let me know what you think and I would love for you to get in touch with Julie and Megan at the VBAC link they have a wealth of resources so please do go and check them out you're going to learn so much more from them Um, remember as well this is a five-part podcast series so we have three Three incredible episodes still to come where we pull apart the topics of 
big babies, inductions. We talk about post-dates or going quote-unquote overdue. We talk about finding the right care provider and so much juicy information around VBACs and all the questions that I get asked from women around VBACs will be answered in this podcast series. So please do make sure you subscribe to the Pregnancy with Physio Laura podcast so that you do not miss out on these episodes coming up. And if you want to binge listen or watch all these episodes, which I imagine so many of you do because you don't want to wait, these episodes are all pre-uploaded inside my online program, The Pregnancy Posse. So all five episodes are already up there for you to watch or listen to all at once. Plus, we have amazing weekly workouts that I've made just for you to keep your body strong and ready for a VBAC. I have a whole resources library of information to help you prepare mentally and physically for labor and birth, which is super important as well. So if you're needing or craving or desiring more support, physically and mentally for your VBAC journey. I do encourage you to go on into my online program, The Pregnancy Posse. Um, I will greet you there with a little video message. Um, it's a really beautiful community. I've poured my heart and soul into it. So please, if that sounds like it's good for you, go and check it out at thepregnancyposse.com. But without further ado, let's jump into this incredible episode with Megan and Julie from The VBAC Link, pulling apart the research, giving you more information around what factors are actually important in determining a successful VBAC. Enjoy. Welcome, Julie and Megan, to the podcast. You are my first international guest and I've been so excited for this podcast interview because I love all the work that you guys do over at the VBAC link. When I stumbled across your page during my own VBAC journey, I found it to be such a wealth of knowledge. So I know that everything we're going to chat about in today's episode is going to help so many women. So thank you so much for coming on. Yay, we're so happy to be here. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> And it's, it's so kind of cool being your first international. Oh, cool. so cool. Like I was saying before the recording, I was like, I'm up at the crack of dawn. You guys are in America. After daylight. <laughs> and it's just like a really good example to me of how cool it is. We're so interconnected. You know, I get to share your knowledge from the other side of the world through a microphone. It's amazing. So I'm, I'm super pumped about it. And I've got you on today to talk about facts. And I know that might sound super dry to a lot of women that might hear this, but one of the <laughs> biggest things I get asked when it comes to my personal journey through VBAC or how I made the decision to try for a VBAC is what is the evidence behind X, Y, and Z? You know, what are the stats say to support us? Because I think a lot of women want to know, does the evidence support us in having a VBAC and all of the things around having a VBAC? What does big babies mean? And can we be induced? Mm. And what are my risks of a uterine rupture? And all these things are spinning through women's heads to try and help them make a decision that feels right for them. So I knew that I wanted to get you guys on to sort of myth bust and actually present the facts in a really friendly, you know, beautiful manner. It's not going to be a dry episode. It's going to be super interesting. So that's what we're going to dive into. So I wanted to start off with this one because I know that a lot of women, when they hear VBAC, they think that they're kind of fighting the tides, which they are in so many ways, but the evidence is actually very hopeful. So I saw on your page that you said 90% of women are good candidates for VBAC, but only 10% are given the opportunity to try. So can you flesh that out a little bit and maybe explain why you think only 10% are given the opportunity, even though so many are good candidates? Let me just talk about how like 
when you know when you even just hearing you say it like I know it it's on our website we say it all the time but like even hearing you say like 90 percent 90 percent it's huge and you know unfortunately like you're saying like we do kind of have to fight against the tide with this a lot of the times and we shouldn't have to but um unfortunately the this 10 percent you know or so they they do have to fight they have to um work for it and the reason one of the reasons why a lot of people are not given the option it, it's not even that they're not even given the option it's just like not talked about like mm. wouldn't you agree julie like it is it's not even talked about it's like oh you had a c-section let's, let's schedule, schedule repeat your, yeah <laughs> let's let's schedule your repeat like so it's not even proposed hey you had a C-section last time. You're a great candidate for vaginal birth. Let's talk about the risks of both vaginal and repeat cesarean. And so these providers all around the world, all around the world are not even discussing it mm. and, um, and giving people the option. And a lot of times it's because the provider themselves maybe have seen a scary thing or they're uncomfortable supporting, quote unquote, a really high risk, you know, situation um and they chalk it up to oh it's too dangerous it's safer to do a repeat cesarean and so they just don't even they they don't even attempt it or offer it um a lot of providers also all around the world are really restricted by insurances mm. like insurance company um they won't cover and so it's not even that they don't want to support it it's that they they can't in their mm. practice um, so yeah, what are some other reasons that you would say, Julie? Yeah, I, I think that's spot on. I think that we as a society, and it's really cool to be talking to you in Australia right now, because Australia and the United States have a lot of similarities, but also all over the world, we have a lot of similarities, right? Where we might be dealing with different statistics and numbers, but we're all fighting against a system where we have culturally conditioned medical providers and we have parents that are raised to trust in a system that might be leading them on a path that is not always the best choice for them. And so I think a lot of that has to do with it. We have parents who, parents who aren't necessarily interested in learning what their options may be. They just trust their providers. They want to be able to trust their providers. And, and honestly, we should be able to trust our care providers. And then we have providers um, who went through a system trained to solve problems. And, and a lot of our obstetricians and gynecologists, they're, they're trained surgeons and they're trained to identify problems in childbirth. And a lot of the times when you're trained and taught to do something, that's the things that you see. And a and our healthcare system is so medicalized that a lot of OBs don't normally see or don't see a lot of just natural physiological birth. And it's, and I, I like to give the benefit of the doubt. I don't like to lump providers into a group because I don't think they're all like each other, but we have a medical care system that's overworked. Our obstetricians are tired. They deliver dozens and dozens of babies a month. I can't even imagine what their um, cortisol levels are like, like their stresses with the lack of sleep and up hours of the night delivering babies and their inconsistent schedule and time with their families and um, everything. So unbalanced. Um, I just, it, there's gotta be a level of ease to scheduling some of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And you have, and then you, like Megan said, some of them surely have seen um, uterine ruptures or catastrophic uterine ruptures that did not have good outcomes. Unfortunately, that's one of the risks that, um, that you're dealing with when you talk about feedback, but it is really rare, but it does happen. Mm-hmm. And these providers have to answer those. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, another thing our medical system is not good at is helping our providers deal with traumatic experiences that happen. Mm-hmm. And so they carry these with them the best way they know how. And unfortunately, sometimes we carry those, they carry those experiences with them into the next parent and the next birth. And uh, don't blame them for not wanting to relive that. But um, also we need to be able to hold them a little bit more accountable too, but that's why it's so important as a parent to be able to educate yourself, have mm-hmm. the information, and then make the choices best for your family, whether it is a VBAC, uh, which is a, like we talked about before is a great chance that you're going to have a successful one, especially with a supportive provider. I hate to use the word success when talking about birth, but, um, it's just important to have the right people on your team and to be able to stand up for yourself and know what your options are and follow your intuition. Oh yeah. And it could be a re- could be that you feel good just scheduling a repeat cesarean and that's okay too. Yeah. But what we really care about with the VBAC link is making sure that you're educated and that you have choices mm-hmm. and that you choose what's best for your family. hundred percent wow. agree. And that's the thing. I, it's probably important to know. I think it goes without saying, but this is not a, VBAC is better than repeat Caesar podcast at all. This is a, here's information that you may not have been exposed to and you take from it what feels good for you and to make the best decision for you because there is no one right way to birth. There is only the right way for you. And that may look a million different ways depending on who you are. There is no hierarchy in birth of what is best and what is worse. It is important that you feel safe, seen, soothed, confident, empowered. And that could, that could look on paper in many different ways from a delivery point of view. And I agree as well with what you're saying around obstetricians are not bad people. I think, because sometimes I I know myself, I can get a little bit like, I don't like sometimes where the VBAC chat goes, it can be a bit like Mm -hmm. anti people. And I'm not Mm -hmm. for that. I'm, I'm much more, I'd rather be pro something than anti something. But I think what, what you said is spot on in that they're dealing with their own trauma and they're dealing with a system that is not really working so well. And they're trying to make the best situation out of it. So they want healthy mom, healthy baby, and the way they want to go about that just might be different to you. So that's why I think it's really important for women to take ownership of their birth and to feel fully empowered and confident. And that's going to help your obstetrician do a good job too. If you're coming to the table, taking ownership of your birth, because at least they know what they're dealing with. You know what I mean? Like coming to them with preferences and plans, should you be taking that route and coming to them advocating for yourself? Um, Because at the end of the day, like they are, you know, they have to work within the system that we've got. And that system is not necessarily set up for each individual woman to have this amazing empowered birth experience. It's set up to make sure we have safe women, safe babies, healthy babies, everyone's alive and well, which is fine to scratch the surface, but what women are craving is something a bit deeper than that. So I think it's just about women acknowledging that taking ownership over that. It's not about saying, yeah, that I, not that I'm suggesting you were saying this, but I just want to put it out there for those of them who might still feel a little bit of like distaste towards certain care providers. I definitely don't think it's on them. I think it's the system in general is a little bit 
broken. <laughs> right. Which yeah. is like well, the way I mentioned the insurance companies, or even sometimes mm-hmm. it's the hospital. It's like these providers, like we went to an incredible, incredible conference with the evidence-based birth. And we met this OB and she's like, I want this for people. I want to offer this for people. And I am so restricted Yeah, and I'm fighting, I'm fighting for these women. Yeah. And it's, it is, it's such a system. And I'm hoping one day we can peel through all the layers and just make it smell like a butterfly, you know, smell not an like onion. A, what do butterflies not smell an like? Onion. Oh, Butterfly, okay, a flower. I don't think a butterfly has a smell. I don't smell like a flower instead of an onion because sometimes people can have that poor sour taste for this experience. And like you said, they're looking for something deeper. And think about birth, it's deep. It's so emotional. It's so powerful. So yeah, it it Mm. should be, you know. Absolutely. And I, I, again, I obviously work in a very niche area, but I see the tides are turning. So I think my mum had three Caesars and there was not an option for her to even contemplate a VBAC. Um, it just wasn't on the cards. There was no autonomy really. Like it was just sort of told that this is what you need to do. Mm-hmm. And I look at my experience, it was hard. And, you know, I kind of had to exit the system to be able to achieve it. But I look at maybe my daughters and I think I think by the time they're giving birth and their daughters are giving birth, that it's going to be so much more accepted that, oh, yeah, VBAC. Yeah, everyone will know yeah. what that means. I think still these days people don't know what that means, VBAC. I, have, I assume they do, but it's still very fresh for some people. And I think the tides are turning and it's becoming more knowledgeable that it is actually a very feasible way to give birth after a Caesar is to have a vaginal delivery. So I think back in the day, once a Caesar, always a Caesar. And I almost think that in the future it will be, doesn't matter how many Caesars, you know, like it's just not even a problem. So I I do sense that there's a shift uh, happening. Again, that could just be the area I work in and you ladies too, but. um, You see it too. I feel like there's a little bit of setback with COVID and things being locked down and things like that. But I feel like things are starting to come back again. And I think a lot of it has to do with parents standing up for themselves and demanding better. I really do. 100% because if there's more demand for VBAC supportive providers and more demand for women who want to take that path, well, it's going to have to match up. You're going to have to get more and more people on board to help these women because it's a supply and demand, isn't it? So I think it's really cool um, for women to be listening to this and to be part of that movement of, of getting the system to mold towards women's preferences. So I think that's really, really cool. So when it comes to VBAC, what are the actual success rates? So a woman's had a Caesar. We're talking about VBAC um, after one Caesar. Let's start there. But what is the actual success rate of having, I, again, I know success is a funny word, but for want of a better word, what are the success yeah. rates of having a VBAC? Um, statistics is right up my alley. Uh, so the American Pregnancy Association um, shows that 60 to 80% of parents who attempt a vaginal birth after having one cesarean will get their vaginal birth or be successful. I hate, like I said, I say, hate the term success, yeah, yeah. but sometimes it's harder to differentiate 
uh, any other way. So for lack of a better word, and that's what I'm going to use. But yeah, 60, 80% will be successful. But honestly, we've seen much higher success rates with really supportive practices. And we see these lower end of the success rates with practices that are not as supportive, um, ones that won't induce or induce aggressively or induce too, induce too early, um, that like to intervene a lot. And so we've seen practices here in our area in, in Utah in the United States of over 90% um, feedback yeah. success. And so, yes, the American Pregnancy Association quotes 60 to 80%. Um, we say up to 80%. And we, like I said, depending on the practice, you could have your chances be as high as 90%. So that's amazing. Because, I know. would say that most women listening to this have did not realize that I didn't know that when I was attempting a VBAC that that the stats are so high and I think what's key about what you just said is the environment so some places who are very VBAC supportive are 90% whereas other places are lower now that's because the environment is either supportive or not supportive and that so that's key and we're going to do another episode later about finding the right care provider and really making sure that you you know, you you find someone that works for you because that is such a key element of making sure that you have whatever desired outcome you want to have. But that's huge. That is so empowering, I think, for women to hear that. That is that is really really big. So thank you for sharing that. Now, a question I get asked a lot is time intervals between pregnancies and births. Mm-hmm. So women want to know how long to wait in between births. So how long after a C-section can I attempt to be back? What does the evidence say? And what are the risks of close pregnancies? So what is it that women need to be looking out for? So you're not alone either, right, Julie? Yeah. One of the most, I would say a good, like 75% of our emails. Yeah. Wow. I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe not that much, but sometimes it feels so, like it I in our like Facebook like group all the time, at least once a day, probably uh, messages on Instagram. Well, I'm thinking like all of our emails, but emails from other people. Yeah. Probably yeah. 60 to 75%. Wow. That's probably a pretty good yeah. estimate. Yeah. Um, how long should I wait and be back after two more cesareans? Like yeah. boom, boom, boom all the time. Um, yeah. So this is a great question. There are a lot, a lot of opinions about it. Every provider that you talk to is going to tell you something different, but here's what the evidence says. Okay. There are three studies that break this down, whether they examine the intervals, the optimal intervals between, um, pregnancies from C- from the time you have your C-section to the time you get pregnant with your next. So the time you can see your next baby. Yeah. Yes. When should you wait? How long should you wait? And the, and the interesting thing is that each of the three studies show different intervals. <laughs> so we have this up on our blog. I'm going to go over the studies right now, but, um, um, uh, as you can find it on our blog, you can just Google a link between pregnancy C-section to VBAC. It'll pop up on the first few results. But um, there's one study uh, that was done uh, in 2010 by Bold. Rate of rupture with birth, uh, birth intervals of 24 months or more. So that means 24 months between births which is if you take, do the numbers, let's see, where's my math skills? I've got kids in elementary, 24 minus nine. So 15 months between birth and conception um, shows that that was the optimal spacing. And there's a slightly higher rate of rupture in the intervals 
um, less than 15 months between birth to conception. There's another retrospective study done in 2007 um, by Stimilo et al. that was shows that um, the pregnancy interval between delivering by C-section and conceiving your next baby only needs to be six months. There's no need, there's, see how, see what I mean? Yeah. Okay. One study shows um, 15 months with uh, no increase of rupture. And the next study that is retrospective study, that's a really good study, shows that there's no increase of uterine rupture as long as it's been at least six months between pregnancies. And then again, a third study, um, SHIP et al. in 2001, shows an inter-pregnancy interval of nine months between pregnancies. So it's either six months, nine months, or 15 months <laughs> to give you any kind of confidence in that answer. However, there, it, there is information here that shows waiting at least six months between getting impregnant again could decrease your risk for rupture. However, in order to make any kind of conclusive statement about that, more of it, more clearly more, more evidence, research has to be done. You just have to do more. There's yeah. so many things. But then um, even then in the Stimulo study that showed the six month interval, the, uh, those that got pregnant within the six months had a uterine rupture rating or a actual uterine rupture rate of 2.6%. And even that risk might be acceptable to some people. So yeah. Um, I'll, we break down all the studies on that blog of ours and I can send it over to you if you would like. And we break down what all the studies say and we even link to the studies if people want to look a little more into it. So there's your not so solid answer. <laughs> I know. And even then, I think it's really important for the individual to take in consideration their own family desires, needs, and things like that. Like, Sometimes a provider might say, you can't conceive for the next two years. That's really not what this family's wanting or feeling right about. And so it's up to that individual to make that choice. I mean, and, you know, we see it all the time. I mean, Julie had one. Um, how long How long were your pregnant uh, C-section to conception? Um, so it was 23 months between births. So it's 14 months between pregnancies. 14 months. Yeah, like we've seen, we've, we've seen lower months and, and all is okay, but like, it's, it's hard. And that's where we encourage people to go and have those conversations with their provider and say, this is what I want for my family. I'm planning this for my family. Mm -hmm. You know, is this appropriate? Can you give me any evidence? Can you tell me what's going on? Cause it does, I mean, six to 18 months. I mean, that's a, it's a difference. Huge. It's a, it's a whole, for he, Utah, it's like three seasons. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like, you know, like. Construction season, spring, winter, fake spring, winter. summer, and fall. Like, you know, and so it's just, it's crazy. So I, guess, I, I, you know. I think there's such good points though, because again, it's coming back to here's some, you know, information that we have. We have no conclusive evidence. Here's just some information. Take from that what feels right for you to have a really good conversation with your care provider. Because what I really like that you said, Julie, was acceptable risk. Because when it comes to risks, it is on you to feel comfortable and to accept that risk for yourself, not for anybody else to accept it on your behalf. It's for you to accept that risk for yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really, I, it just stuck with me when you said that because 2.6%, I think you said prior to six months, let's say that were to happen for someone. We need to put that into perspective. I'm just imagining someone sitting here who may 
whether it's accident or on purpose, fallen pregnant, it does not mean that your uterus is going to burst because you're within this six month interval. It means that there is a 2.6 chance, 2.6% chance that that could happen. And we really need to put that in the grand scheme of things. That's still a very small statistic for some women though, that will feel too high, but for a lot of women, they might go, you know what? I'm actually I would do comfortable it. with that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and I so, would do it. Yeah. And I had to work through this myself being a V-back two mama because there is a slightly higher risk of uterine rupture according to the evidence. And I had to sit with, am I comfortable with this 1% increase in uterine rupture risk? And I was 100% comfortable with it. And again, that doesn't mean that everyone should be, but I think it's about working out, are you happy and are you accepting of this small risk? Because it's on you, you need to be able to own that. Because I think if you if you can't accept that, there's a lot of fear around it and that's not going to work in your favor. And just for everyone listening, I had a 10 month interval in between all my babies. So um, I had four kids in less than five years. So yeah. <laughs> so that's I'm the thing. Right there. Yeah. And I think that's, I always wanted kids close together. That was really important to our family that we wanted to be able to have our kids all in one season of life. And so I know I was one of these mums asking, okay, how long until I can have another baby? And, you know, I didn't want to have to wait. And to be honest, I, I could have just had like a really bad postpartum haze, but I am confident my OB told me six months and I'm pretty confident. So my sister-in-law had the same OB and she was told 12 months. And I was like, are you sure? Cause I'm pretty sure I was told six months and I'm like, maybe I misheard, but even amongst OBs, I'm quite sure that there is a whole no range. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I think this yep. is just such a key piece for women to go, ah, okay. The evidence is not really solid. Maybe after six months, but also maybe not like, just look at the facts, discuss them with your provider and work out what feels best for your family. So thank you so much for touching on this. Cause like you said, 75% of your inbox is asking these questions. And so I think many. women really need to know. Now, another hot topic, which I'm sure you get all the time. Can I actually add one more thing before we shift gears? I'm so sorry. Um, I want to clarify that um, when we're talking about the optimal intervals uh, to decrease the risk of uterine rupture, that's just specific for how long it takes your scar to heal enough before the risk of rupture um, isn't increased anymore. We're not talking about like the, um, the length of time that is optimal for any pregnancy. Like I normally, like normally providers like to, and normally I would say everyone probably has different opinions about this, but like optimal spacing for like your body to heal and return back to like normal, I say normal in quotes, um, is 12 months. Like that's kind of an optimal, like inter pregnancy interval for everybody. And so you're going to have a lot of variants here too, but, but this is just talking about specifically about, um, the risks for uterature. And again, I'm coming from none of my, only my first two were that year or more spacing apart there. My other pregnancies were, um, nine and 10 months as well. So yeah. Good to know. Yeah. Yeah. We're not talking about hormonal depletion and all the and other body uterine. placement, yeah. <laughs> pelvic yeah. floor health or anything yeah. like that. That's just good. the scar. Yeah. Good point. Yep. Yeah. Just scar. We're talking about. Yep. Yeah. Hey mamas. I so hope that you loved that episode. And if you like me, listen to that, that you actually feel reassured now that, ah, oh, 
the evidence is in our favor okay so like myself i'm sure many of you have experienced this where you hear that feedbacks are scary and feedbacks are risky and da 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 there's a lot of fear mongering right and all of those things can be true like we know there is risk with everything but i think it's really cool to see it broken down, to know the numbers, to sit with that information now and marinate on it and decide what is acceptable for you. It is only you that can decide what feels good and safe and comfortable and right and true and it's for you to sit with that. So what I hope this podcast series does is provide you with the information, the facts, the stats, the research so that you can go away and make your own decision from a fully informed place, not from a place of fear or a place of lacking confidence or being unsure or not making decisions confidently in your own power, but instead making decisions from a truly informed and educated place. Regardless of what your decision is, it doesn't matter. It's that you're making it with all the information. And that's what I want this series to provide for you. So please come on over to my social media at PhysioLaura and let me know what you got out of this episode, how it may inform you moving forward in your VBAC journey. I would so love to hear from you. I love connecting with women. You know I'm passionate about this topic, so I really want to hear from you. And please go and check out Julie and Megan at the VBAC link on Instagram. They have an amazing website. They have amazing resources. I know you're going to love them. They are a wealth of knowledge, those women. I'm so honored and privileged that they came on the podcast to share this information And as I mentioned earlier, if you want to connect with me, ask me your VBAC questions, you want to stay fit and strong every week of your pregnancy and learn all about preparing physically and mentally for birth. All of that is inside my online program, The Pregnancy Posse. So that is where I've put all of this information. All these episodes are pre-uploaded inside the posse for all members to watch straight away rather than waiting for them to be released. And I know that you will be supported wholeheartedly inside that membership, physically, mentally nourished. So if that sounds like it is a good option for you, if you're craving that right now, you can come and find me inside the program. Visit thepregnancyposse.com and you can trial the program for seven days. But until then, mamas, subscribe to the podcast because episode three will be coming out next week and I don't want you to miss out. In this episode, we're going to be covering the stats and the research on big babies inductions and going quote unquote overdue and what that might mean for your VBAC journey and what the evidence says about that. So that's going to be a great, big, juicy conversation. I cannot wait to have it wherever you are right now. I hope you're having a wonderful day and I will talk to you soon. Bye.